You're listening to the Virtual World Society Nextent Podcast. For this episode, we welcome Dr. Angelina Dayton, Senior VR Research Scientist at the Virtual World Society. To get involved with our organization, head over to virtualworldsociety.org. What is going on, everybody? It is Maxwell once again with the Virtual World Society interviewing another incredibly fantastic, fascinating, accomplished, and very, very successful person, which I am always excited to do and is my favorite thing to do. We are here with the Dr. Angelina Dayton, who is the Senior VR Research Scientist for the Virtual World Society and has also put 50,000 people, almost 50,000 people, in a headset. Incredible accomplishments. Angelina, thank you so much for joining us for the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm happy to have you for a number of reasons. And there's so much to talk about and there's so much to discuss. And that's why, again, I love this job is because there's no shortage of fascinating information. I'm very curious, is the, is the one in that 50,000, is that one you, would you consider it? <laughs> the... Um I'm in VR all the time, but I'm more in real life being a real life person. And so I don't really count myself uh, because most of the time my headset's on somebody else. It's not normally on me. And so uh, while I'm known as the VR lady and uh, whenever I show up, the kids yell, the VR lady's here, the VR lady's here. I'm much funner as a real person than I am as the VR lady. And so, I mean, I, it, it is what I do for a living. And a lot of people talk a lot about what if people become addicted um, or what if people's uh, physical world life blurs too much with their virtual life. But I find a lot of beauty and a lot of love and a lot of excitement in my real physical world. And I encourage people when I put on the headset to see it as something that includes and transcends their beautiful physical lives and a way to make our physical lives even more beautiful. And so, yes, I'm one of those people, but um, there's much more to me in the physical world than there is in the VR world, I think. Yeah. When you started to transition into virtual reality, realizing the beauty that was within it and also in our own reality, because I think VR makes you appreciate the reality that we're in now. Was that when you were first getting started in virtual reality? Yes. Um, what happened was that I had um, a virtual reality headset and I was approached by the American Indian Resource Center here in Cherokee Nation, Oklahoma, because they had 50 schools that they wanted to deploy in. And so um, I, I helped them deploy in those schools. And that's how I really got started in VR. And that was pre-pandemic. And we that's most of those 50,000 heads that I put in headsets came from that experience. And um, that's really how I got my start. It wasn't about the medium, though, and it wasn't about the technology. It was really about um, an exciting experience um, that I wanted to bring to those that probably wouldn't get that experience if I didn't have the headset in my hand and drive drove all the way out there to these remote areas of, of Cherokee Nation, of uh, North Western, Northeastern Oklahoma, and other places. We've been to Navajo Nation. I've been all over California, 
Oregon, most of the United States, some places in Central America, some places in Europe. But at the beginning, it was just about taking the experience somewhere that it wouldn't be if if somebody who had a headset didn't actually go out there physically and make it happen. So so you made it happen for so many individuals. Do you have do you have some favorite memories of their reactions? Somebody's first time reaction to virtual reality? If you've ever put anybody in a headset, every single first time reaction is always pretty awesome. Um, the things that people say, because I'm an anthropologist by training. So I study humans and their desire to interact and communicate with other people. And this is just a new medium to do that. And so I see things that happen as they experience the medium as a way of them trying to express themselves and communicate to others. And so what happens is even though I can't see what they're seeing, they express themselves in this desire to share this amazing experience with somebody else. So they'll say things like, oh, did you see that? Or you got to see that. Um, when I put them in experiences, I normally pair them them with a partner. And I find that learning happens that way because I get to see somebody I care about experience something that's exciting to them. They're telling me about how exciting the experience is. They're coaching me when I get into the headset about how exciting the experience is. And I'm experiencing it for myself. So there's all those ways that interaction and connectivity um, not just connectivity in terms of did I connect to the internet, but did I connect to somebody else in a meaningful way? Was I able to share that experience? Those are the things that I really see every time I put somebody into a headset and it warms my heart. It really does. It's wonderful because social VR is so popular now and we're starting to find and see that no, VR is not like phones in the same way. I mean, a lot of us got addicted to our phones and we've got our heads buried in it and we're always looking at it. To be fair, it was the same with books or newspapers or whatever it is. But VR is truly different, right? I mean, it's truly new. It, yes, it's it's technology the same as it's always been. Yes, it's social the same as it's always been. But isn't this technology way more social than anything we've ever seen before? Yes, and I like to think of it as a volumetric medium. Um, and by volumetric, I mean 3D or 4D, right? And the way that I explain it is that when we're born, we're born into this volumetric world of experiences. And what we've learned over the last two centuries is how to translate that into paper, which is 2D, or screens, which are 2Ds, 2D. But really, our natural medium is 3D. And um, when we get more haptics involved, hugging people in VR will feel more real. But what we're what our body yearns for is to be back into that immersive experience, right? That kind of holistic immersive experience. And so I think it is um, the new medium that will unlock things within ourselves. I have a saying that I used to say all the time in students in VR, which is emerging technologies have finally caught up with the creativity and genius of youth, um, it, the creativity and genius of everyone. But I used to say youth because I see it as a medium that can go into classrooms and teach in a way that paper and 2D screens can't. In the way that we learned when we were children in a volumetric space with our blocks and with our uh, with the people we love next to us and out of our chairs and out of our seats and out of our classrooms into something more holistic. And so, yes, I think it's 
definitely a transformational medium, kind of, but really it's a retro medium back into the ways that we are naturally built to learn and grow I, and love. I love that. I love that. You know, we're going back to how how we are originally learning. We're just using the power of technology in order to do it. And it's so funny because when I was a kid, um, I learned so much from video games. And back, especially in, in, in the 90s and early 2000s and everything, when I was gaming a lot, especially when I was younger, uh, one thing I noticed is that there were a lot of parents and there were a lot of teachers and education that would say, you can't learn from video games, they fry your brain. And I remember being in uh, a history class in high school and I could quote all this like random Italian history. Like, do you, you know, do you know this fun fact about Leonardo da Vinci? Like, this is what he actually acted like. This is what he did. You know, uh, this is who he was. I had found that out because I had played Assassin's Creed and then went online and said, okay, what parts of Assassin's Creed are true? I was very interested in the topic. I had immersed myself in the game and the experience of the game. And all the while, I was learning that whole, that whole time. You know, I learned about bikes, about riding a bike by riding a bike. I learned about, you know, jump shots and trick shots on on a board. And when you do it wrong, it's really, really painful. So I'm not going to make that same mistake again. So you're absolutely right that this experience is so important, especially to kids. And did those those same kids that you were teaching about these these three dimensional experiences, did they start off right away and just point you and go, you're the VR lady now? Or did the nickname come up somewhere else? So when I originally started working, I would take a large athletics bag full of my virtual reality headsets out to schools. And I would go out more than once. Sometimes I would go out to teach the faculty. Sometimes I would go out to teach the students. Sometimes I was called out multiple times to do activities. So once the children knew who I was, um, they would run to the fence on the playground and they would yell out the VR ladies here at more than one school that that's what I was called and so um that's who I became the VR lady um and now a lot of people will call me Dr. Angelina or Dr. Dayton or they'll call me Angelina um but at the beginning nobody really knew who I was I was kind of like Santa pulling this big bag of toys behind me and so there was a lot of excitement about um, me coming and bringing out these toys to your point earlier and the children were playing and I had to explain to educators that play is how we learn. Any lifelong learner will tell you that we are lifelong learners because to us it's play. So that's how I feel about um virtual reality it should be something you enjoy it should be something that you have fun with there shouldn't be so many restrictions on it uh, quick aside you know they say that games fry your brain you have to have screen time limits and all of these things come out of the education field about these parameters we need to put on things but when the pandemic hit nobody had a problem making kids stare at a screen for 12 hours a day it was just what they needed to do. So I'm highly suspicious of, of restrictions that are put on our consumption of media, not because we don't need moderation, but moderation should be in all things that we do, not specifically to control our, 
our media consumption. They said, um, you know, our, our my kids always on their phone while they're scrolling their phone talking to me. <laughs> so, I mean, really, it's about moderation as a society and as examples. And so um, I think that that playing, there should be no moderation on playing. If you're playing, you'll learn, you'll grow, you'll thrive. It's, it, it'll be healthy. We just need to to learn what's healthy and nurtures us and makes us better people and do those things more often. So it's a popular thought among educators, but it's what I believe. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I'm in education myself. I don't have nearly the amount of experience that you do, but the little bit of experience that uh, that I've gotten over the past couple of years, I've been in academia now for about five years, which is in the grand scheme of academia is like nothing. But from the little bit that I've seen, what I have noticed is that, wow, a lot of this is updated. When I got my master's degree in education, all of our uh, all of our research that we had to study was all updated. And all the research said the exact same thing. Nobody wants to watch a PowerPoint lecture anymore for, for three hours. Nobody wants to watch a professor talk about a particular subject with no visuals and nothing and just talk for three hours. And it's not about, oh, toughen up and listen up. That's It's like you said, our brains don't really work that way. Like we can't force something that's not real, you know. And there's a little bit more than that, which is that nowadays our youth create the world that they live in. So they can take a cell phone and create uh, a change of government in a country through their social media, right? And so um, where before teachers were the center of the classrooms and the holders of the knowledge of how the world works, now children create the world in which they live in. And that's a different perspective as you think about how we convey information and knowledge are we consumers of it? Are we contributors contributors to knowledge? Or are we the creators of the knowledge? And those things are changing now. And academia kind of needs to catch up with that. Yeah. Absolutely. Academia is certainly has a lot of a lot of a lot of outdated ideals, but I do love organizations that are changing things for the better. And that reminds me of SkillSpark. And I feel like SkillSpark is a great example of an organization that is taking these updated values and these new ideals and bringing them in kind of into the world. So how did you originally get involved with SkillSpark? And, and through your eyes, what what is SkillSpark? So SkillSpark is a project through the Virtual World Society where we identify some leaders within virtual reality in, a, in various verticals, medicine, education, um, the arts, and we supported them in their development as leaders within that vertical so that they can learn what the research says, apply it, and then we work with them in an iterative process to develop their programming so that they have successful deployments. And one of the things that we do is we look at the barriers and supports to successful deployments in different environments. Remember, I said I'm an anthropologist by training, even though I do education. And so what we look at is creating the environments where healthy deployment can occur and sustained use will occur also. And so it's more than just deploying. It's more than just going out and dropping off a bunch of headsets at schools. It's about changing the paradigm in which we live in, in order to understand that this new medium allows us to do more things. It includes and transcends our previous screen and paper mediums. And then how do we utilize that to get the most out of the, the programs that we're supporting 
Can we get more people more interested in the arts? Can we improve the deployment in medical fields? Can we make education more useful for the teacher and more palatable for the students? And so uh, SkillSpark is, is, a, is a project that we're launching in order to gather the research we need for the large-scale deployment and mass adoption of immersive technologies. And so I get to work with these really great people that are doing very innovative things. And every day we have a lot of successes and a lot of things that we think, hmm, maybe we should have done that a little bit differently. And we go back to the drawing board. One of the things about virtual reality as a medium that's different than books and written papers is that those medium are static in that all the knowledge that exists in a book is just already there for you to consume. consume. But new mediums, new media, I guess, allows you to create and generate knowledge within it. And so the process can't be static. The process of deploying, the process of using it has to be as dynamic as the medium is and iterative, which means you make a lot of mistakes, which is fine because that's how you learn to walk. That's how you learn to do anything. I think that modern education and deployment in industry needs to accept the fact that we're not ever going to go back to static medium and static ways of deploying where you know everything to begin with. You have to be able to be courageous and say, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. It's going to be okay. We'll fix it. Things are going to change. Everything's fluid. Let's just roll with it and see what happens. And so that's that's what I get to do with SkillSpark every day is be a little bit courageous, a little bit crazy, and a little bit, um, uh, a little bit, um, supportive of the fears that we all face <laughs> when we're doing something new every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I can assume it would be scary for a lot of people and organizations to get used to this new way of doing things. You know, this this new way of learning. It's like you said, it's an iterative process in research. That's the one thing that you learn is it is constantly changing, shifting. It's fluid. Are there a lot of people and organizations that you work with uh, while working with SkillSpark that are open to the idea of this change or this, this new media? I We got to select the groups that we were going to work with, and I selected groups that I knew had that fearless um, spirit about them. And uh, so they want to make change. They understand that failure might be part of that. They understand that working with me, that's okay. And so we have very open and honest discussions about things that have changed unexpectedly, how we'll have to go back to the drawing board. Um, but I think that there's a tenacity for those of us that get into emerging technologies at the beginning of something, knowing that we're taking a lot of risk. And I think there's a type of person, I call us a little bit crazy and a, and a whole lot of courageous, right? So um, I don't work really work with anybody that's that's not a little crazy, honestly. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun because we're out there challenging existing constructs and saying, but what if we didn't do that? But what if, you know, that that didn't happen? I work with a lot of people who beg forgiveness and don't ask permission. Um, so that makes uh, the work that I do a lot of fun. And so we really look to partner the Virtual World Society and the SkillSpark program really look to partner with people who are risk takers and who have joy in the process, regardless of the outcome, because you just can't predict that in this industry, at least not right now. 
Yeah. And uh, one big thing I've noticed, especially from educational institutions, a lot of them, is they're a little bit wary of risk. You know, they are they're wary of risk. It's it's almost always comes back to a financial thing, right? It's always a finances thing. We don't want to lose money. We don't necessarily want to invest in this in this new technology if it's not going to work out. Is is there is there a prepared something that you that you discuss with them uh, that you talk about with maybe not necessarily the naysayers, but those that are hesitant, where you say, hey. Take a look at this research or take a look at this at this headset or, or take a look at these finances. Is there anything in particular you like to point to, especially for those in organizations that are a little bit too wary when they shouldn't be? So one of the first questions I ask people is, um, what are they focusing on? And when people say money, I usually don't have much longer conversations with them. Now, especially if they're in education, if learning isn't the first thing out of their mouth, I usually don't continue my conversations much longer after that. However, there is something that I say quite often. I talk about Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, which is a book I tell everybody to read if they want to understand how change is going to occur as we enter into using this new medium of virtual reality. He talks about scientific revolutions and he talks about Ptolemy and how Ptolemy's theories were accepted and what needed to occur in order for the Copernican revolution. And I said, one of the things that has to happen is that you have to realize you are not the center of the universe anymore. That's what I say to teachers. And that's a very difficult thing for people to accept, especially teachers, because learning in classrooms, although relatively new in the way that we have them now, just barely since the the Industrial Revolution, we've been led, led to believe that that is the only way that we learn. We forget about all the learning that happens in our homes. We forget about all the learning that happens in our communities. And teachers think that they are the center of all learning. And this new medium is not that way. It's not the way things happen anymore. Students create the knowledge that they put out into the world to mold the world into what they want now. Things things are, are just that way. And once you understand that, I think when you find the teachers, when the new group of teachers come in that understand that or the old school teachers begin to accept that, I think you're going to see them wanting to embrace this dynamic um medium in a way where they can take part in it with their students and not be just um, the, that which provides knowledge to be consumed, but uh, people who work on it with, with inside creating new knowledge with their students. I think that that's, that's exciting to some teachers. I think they'll embrace it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and creating knowledge is something I really love. I love, I love what you said, creating knowledge and, creating experience with between teachers and and students i notice is a very positive uh, experience because i feel as though teachers need to adopt the attitude that they can also learn from their students you know that yeah what, what i what we did when we were running students in br is we realized that everybody was a student and so they said, what do you mean by students to find students? I go, well, we the teachers were the students, the 90 year olds that were trying to get into VR for the first time were the students. Um, and then anybody who knew one thing more than anybody else in that VR experience was a teacher. If they were 
14 years old, but they knew how to work a controller when somebody else didn't, they were the teacher. So all those definitions of teachers and students didn't work anymore. We needed a, a new language. We needed a new term, new terminologies for what we were experiencing because it was a group working together. Here's another example that I try to tell people, which is that if you watch geese as they fly south for the winter, they form a V and there's a leader in the group. But depending on the changes in the airflow and how tired the geese get, different geese lead the front of the V as they travel south. And so that's more like what VR learning is and VR experiences are. The, the person that's in the front leading, if there is a leader or a teacher, it changes as the environmental factors change and the individual changes. It's dynamic, just like the medium. So that's the example that I use to help people kind of change their paradigm and how they see the teacher-student relationship. I don't know if that's useful, but it's what it I is, use. It is very useful because it teaches us about collaboration. It teaches us that, yes, there are leaders in education. However, it shouldn't be a leader with an iron fist saying, this is how it's going to work. This is gonna, how it's going to go down. This is how you're going to learn. A leader has to be a leader and a boss are two different people. That's that's what I've recognized throughout the years is a leader is open minded. They're willing to do the same work that those that are following them are, are doing. They're open to it. It's just they inspire others. You know, teachers should be inspiring students, especially in VR. And can you give an example of some of those successes, I, I I like to I like to focus on the positive. Some of the successes uh, that you've had so far, especially with uh, with SkillSpark. Right now, we're just at the beginning. And what I can tell you is people are moving much faster than we are. And so our role is really to provide support. We have a 15-year-old uh, in the group right now. Her name is Sana Shah. And um, she's been working in virtual reality over the last couple of years. I was one of her mentors at the beginning. And we got her involved in supporting a, a medical hackathon. And since then, she's been working on latency in XR headsets so that remote medicine can become more viable. She's 15. <laughs> She's 15 years old. And so um, she saw a need that the latency issues um, in using an XR headset to provide service to a patient, a care to a patient in one location uh, was hindering remote care for important medical procedures. And so she took it upon herself to learn more about what causes that latency so that it can be instantaneous um, care across, using the XR technology, you can give care across large distances. One of the things that we learned was that those that live in rural communities have a 40% higher mortality rate for breast cancer because they're just not able to get the same level of care as they would if they lived in an inner city, but through the use of XR technologies, you can provide that same level of care over greater distances through remote care technologies. And so I won't get into specifics and honestly, I am not as smart as Sana is. And so I probably couldn't tell you everything, but that was a great success because what we did was we said, what do you need? What extra information do you need? What context do you need? How can we help you with your research? Is there any way that we can supplement the buying of the technology so that you can prototype? 
Um, is there a way that we can get you to share this information at different symposiums or different um, uh, like AWE different? Uh, and, and so we're working with her to get the knowledge that she's acquiring out to as large of an audience as possible. And then that helps her because our goal is always how do we then duplicate this, make this person successful individually, but then also duplicate this for other people who may want to take that same trajectory later on. So that's what Virtual World Society is doing is we're creating the prototype, again, for mass adoption, large-scale deployment of this technology. And that happens by having one person be very successful in what they're doing and then finding all the rest of the Sana Shahs out there in the world and saying, here, we can help you do the same thing. Here's the technology. Here's the, here's the, uh, the, the support that you need. Here's the way that we can reduce the barriers to, to entry. So, well, that is one remarkable success story, and I really love that. And it's amazing that you say she's fifteen. Yes, fifteen years amazing. old. That is truly, truly amazing. And, and people, the, the oldest person in our cohort is seventy. Wow. And, and she, I didn't know she was that age, and so because she looks so young and she's so vibrant. I find that those somewhat crazy, very courageous people that we work with in the industry that I was telling you about, that it keeps us very youthful. And and her project is about teaching social emotional learning through virtual reality. And she's very progressive in the way that she's able to take the technology and see how to make people better humans through it. Uh, a lot of times we look for the practical applications, but she's uh, she's her name's Robin White, and she is an amazing woman who understands that we can bring things like art to places that we couldn't otherwise make art available, maybe because they couldn't travel to a museum in New York City where she lives. And then how do we use artwork to help us understand differing perspectives and the humanity that exists within all of us? And how does that make us better people so that when we step into the virtual VR space, we're kind and we're loving and we're engaging and we can see somebody who has a different avatar or different voice or a different background or experience and still be compassionate. And so I thought this is exactly what the VR world needs is that practice every day. We need to step into an environment that she's creating before we get into the pool of VR social activity so that we prime ourselves to be better humans and to be loving and kind. And we bring that into the virtual worlds that we inhabit. So that's another kind of success story, really beautiful work that she's doing. I love it. It sounds beautiful. It sounds unbelievably positive. I love it. I love this project. For those that want to check it out and want to get more involved with the SkillSpark uh, Spark project at the Virtual World Society, what do they do? We will be choosing a new cohort sometime next year. So check out the VWS page. Subscribe to uh, VWS and you'll be getting updates on everything that we do. And you'll know when our next cohort starts. And look at our social media on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. And you'll see more about the wonderful things that they're doing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to say, Dr. Dayton, thank you so, so much for your time, for your efforts in the SkillSpark project and everything that you do. I sincerely appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Once again, it is Maxwell with the Virtual World Society Next in Podcast. Thank you once again for listening, and we will see you same time, same place next week.
If you want to support our work, you can join free at virtualworldsociety.org to receive regular newsletters and updates, donate to help fund our projects and work, and register to volunteer and get in on the action.